problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. We're so happy to have everybody along on this uh, wonderful week. Uh, it has been a fantastic week for us. Uh, we were in Louisville early on. I got to see the uh, national championship game there in Louisville uh, with some new clients, uh, some new friends. Of course, uh, if, if you didn't get a chance to see that game, it was uh, a fun game to watch. Um, but uh, we got to celebrate that in Louisville. But we get to be back home here now uh, in lovely Birmingham, Alabama, which, of course, is still going nuts after that game. Uh, but uh, we are uh, uh, relaxing back at home and enjoying our own work-life balance. Um, I wanted to do a quick shout-out uh, to Cinepair. Uh, which is the organization that's been producing all of our video for our social media over the last three or four months. And uh, the latest video, which is brand new to our website, so if you go to rsquaredconsulting.com, and that's a D on the end there, rsquaredconsulting.com, uh, we did a new video, which was kind of about me and, and a lot of the things that we're doing. Uh, and that has gone viral in the in the context of business. So in the last two weeks, I believe we've gotten over 25,000 views of that video uh, across the different social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, all those different areas. So we certainly appreciate the engagement of the audience in that. Uh, it still is amazing me how that's continuing to grow uh, through retweets and everything else. So we appreciate it. If you've been one of those people that have seen the video, retweeted it, uh, and commented on it. We appreciate it, but a lot of hard work went into that, and we appreciate Cinepair, their partnership with us, and, and that's a partnership we see continuing to grow. They're the ones that help us um, with the hashtag uh, PM Minutes, uh, which is a new web series that we had launched this year, uh, and uh, we're also going to be working with them to launch the PM Inspiration series uh, that we're going to be working on, which will be a co-branding through Alexa, uh, where you're going to be able to ask Alexa to uh, help with uh, PM Inspiration, and uh, you'll hear our voice and several other speakers that have been here on the Work-Life Balance. Um, and as well, uh, if you're uh, an Alexa user, you can now hear this podcast uh, directly through Alexa by asking any pod to play the Work-Life Balance, and she will oblige. So let's get right into our show. We're very, very excited. We have a return guest. Uh, we believe it was a pre-launch of this book um, prior. I think we had him in September 2nd uh, of the previous year. Uh, but we are going to do a panel interview with three different authors today. So I'm going to save a lot of the uh, general introductions that I do because we have three different people here. So we did have John Gates on the show with us uh, September 2nd of last year. But we're now also joined by uh, Jeff Grady and Sasha Lindikins, who all have helped uh, write How Leaders Improve. And now that book is launched. Uh, we're, so we, we had uh, extended the invitation to John and his team uh, back in September to come back and join us. And here they are. So I'd like to say welcome to everybody. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing Thanks, well, Rick. Rick. Thank you. Doing great. Thanks, Rick. So, you know, John, we had talked um, before about the book, right, How Leaders Improve. And, and, you know, we had gotten into some of the research and stuff. So I'm so excited to have Jeff and Sasha here. But if you could recap for the audience, you know, and just give us a general book overview. And, and you know, why did you and, and your team here that, that's with us uh, write this book? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Rick, thanks again for uh, having me back and for having uh, Jeff and Sasha on. Um, I think uh, maybe the best way I can answer that question is 
with an analogy, hopefully sort of a timely analogy. So we're into the new year, and of course, lots of people make New Year's resolutions, and a pretty popular one is to lose weight. And, you know, there are many books out there uh, that uh, suggest that people try different diets for losing weight, and some of them are probably really good books with good advice. But we all know that not everybody who makes that sort of resolution and, and buys and maybe even reads one of those books is actually going to lose weight. And uh, some of those people who do lose weight probably won't keep it off. So the analogy here is there are lots of books out there on leadership, lots of great books with, you know, lots of great advice. But we all know that not everybody who buys and reads one of those books on leadership is actually going to get better as a leader. So uh, one of the reasons we wrote this book was we, we really wanted to sort of add to the literature in the field of leadership by tackling the question, uh, how do leaders actually get better? Um, and we, we hope that through our study, we've helped to answer that question. Um, and the other reason is uh, we wanted to write a particular kind of book. Uh, uh, I was in a conversation recently with somebody who's, who's read the book, and, and he used the term pracademic. Uh, to get at the sort of the combination of uh, something that's practical and at the same time academic. So uh, the book is based on research, but we've also tried to offer up something to, you know, anybody who reads the book that's very practical. So we've identified I th- a total of 10 insights into how leaders improve based on our research. And after each insight, we offer some practical recommendations for leaders seeking to improve, uh, for leadership development professionals who are working with such leaders, um, and for decision makers in organizations who are trying to just get the best possible return on investment from their leadership development uh, efforts. So uh, we really wrote the book in order to uh, uh, really contribute something to the field of leadership development that we hope is really, really practical and helps people to uh, actually have success when it comes to helping leaders improve. Yeah, and I, and I think you brought up something interesting there in, in the fact that, you know, people buy books, they read books, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make the commitment to get better. And, and I think one of the analogies I use on the show quite a bit is, you know, think and grow rich. And and if you, it, it's a de facto guide and a step-by-step guide on how to become a millionaire. And if you look right on the cover, you know, it'll tell you how many millions of copies that book has sold. But we don't know, right. you know, millions and millions of millionaires. And so mm-hmm. there's the, the different styles of people. They're going to be the ones that buy the book and, and never even crack it open and read it. And there's going to be the ones that buy the book and try to read the first chapter but never finish it. And then those that are going to, you know, go cover to cover and truly absorb it. And so, that you know, that's a big thing is people buy it with the intentions. And so what we hope to do and, and we hope to get across on this show here is not only do they need to go buy this book, but why do they need to really consume this information? What's really going to make them better? And so one of the things I found really interesting when we talked the last time, John, is, you know, there was this. Uh, this term that we used, which was ripeness, right? We, we, we were talking about that. And Sasha, um, could you describe that? You know, what is ripeness? What, what are we talking about when we talk about ripeness? Sure, yeah. So ripeness, the way we think about ripeness is it's a general level of, of motivation or readiness to make a specific change. Uh, and maybe to make it more tangible for folks, I'm going to share a story about one of my daughters who, uh, when she was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, she had absolutely no interest or desire to read, which was, as a, uh, a doctoral level graduate, it was mortifying and <laughs> worrying to me uh, that 
my daughter was struggling in second grade with Dick and Jane books. Uh, and then one day she comes home from school and she's in tears and she says, Mommy, Daddy, uh, I'm the worst student in the class. Uh, and we saw this as finally an opportunity for her to take some, take some action on this and for her to be open to becoming a better reader. So we asked her if she would be interested in getting a tutor, and she said, yeah, absolutely. And, and we did uh, tutoring f- with her for, I guess, six months or so. Uh, and all of a sudden, her reading scores started jumping up. Uh, and I think that really captures the, the idea of, of ripeness really nicely, because early on, no matter what we did, we couldn't get any internal interest, desire, or appetite to read uh, but once it became important to her, once she became ripe, then she was really open to uh, uh, efforts to help her read. Uh, and a lot of our work in executive coaching or, or leadership development is similar to that. You know, people will get 360 feedback assessments uh, that say they need to work on X, Y, or Z. And, and those who are ripe to make those changes make significant changes. And those who aren't, it's like pulling teeth. Uh, so ripeness is that desire and, and motivation to make a specific change. And as we were interviewing uh, our most improved leaders for uh, our How Leaders Improve book, we started to see some patterns around what enabled people to be ripe, and, and it uh, caused us to come up with what we're calling the, the RIPEN model. It's an acronym uh, and and I think there's five components to someone being ripe. The first of this is that there's a realization. There's some sort of insight that something needs to change and that the person is the one who needs to make the change. In other words, it's not the boss, it's not the organization, it's them. There's a sense of, of personal accountability there. Uh, so that, that's where it starts. If there's not a realization and, and some personal ownership, uh, someone absolutely can't be ripe to uh, to make a change. The second piece is what we're calling inspiration. And inspiration is, is around someone having a motivation or an incentive to make a change. Uh, so I, you know, if you think of my daughter, she probably had the realization that she wasn't a great reader, but there wasn't really a compelling incentive. Reading's boring. She likes to go outside and play or or, or do other things. She's very social. Uh, and reading probably turned her off because it was so introspective. Uh, but then as she started to <laughs> probably be put in the lowest reading group, and maybe I can only imagine a kid at school made fun of her or something, all of a sudden there was an incentive there, and it was a personally meaningful incentive. So that's the I in our RIPEN model. Uh, then our P is around pressure. In other words, there's some urgency driver. And if you speak with any salesperson, they will tell you it's critical to have an urgency driver. Uh, Why make a change now? Uh, And I think John raised the the analogy of, uh, or or the timely example of of New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions does provide some sort of uh, a a urgency driver. It's not a huge urgency driver, but there is a why make the change now. And when we looked at our most improved leaders, we saw lots of uh, examples where something was creating pressure, maybe a job opportunity uh, in, in particular was one of the most common that we saw. In other words, I, either they got promoted into a new job and they needed to up their game 
or there was a future opportunity, and if they were able to demonstrate broader skills, then they would be the one to, uh, to, to move into that new opportunity. So that's the, the P in the ripen model. Uh, the E is around expectation, and this is around someone's confidence in their ability to, to make the change and, and the knowledge of, of how to make the change. Uh, so they have the motivation and ability to, to make this specific change. And I think a lot of times newer executive coaches or, or managers or well-intended significant others dive right in on this. You know, they say, uh, I, I believe in you, I, I know you can do it, and let me tell you how to do it. So they're really trying to help someone's expectation without looking at the, the preceding steps in, in the model. Uh, and that has predictably bad outcomes because they haven't looked at, does the person think they need to change? Is there any degree of, of motivation to do that? Then the last piece of our ripen model is natural inclination. Uh, and what this gets at, Rick, is some people are more... Uh, open to acting on feedback, to growing, to developing, to changing themselves than others. And, and this natural inclination serves as either a headwind or a tailwind uh, to someone actually being able to make a particular change. So when we talk about ripeness, that's, that's really a bit of an overview of, of what we're talking about there. And we certainly appreciate that. So I'm going to dive in a little bit further in that model. And, and uh, I got a couple of, not challenges, but a couple of things that, that I've observed since I've heard that the first time. So we're going to dive into that when we come right back after this break. You're listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. In today's hyper-fast, super-competitive business world, on time is now too late, on budget is now too expensive, and today's innovation is tomorrow's antique, which means app releases that used to happen regularly now need to happen continuously, while always delivering experiences that keep your customers coming back for more. In other words, you need to be agile, and there's no better way to get there than with agile management from CA Technologies a complete set of solutions and services that make agility a reality. So you can anticipate and rapidly respond to change and immediately incorporate customer feedback, build a flexible bridge between ideas and execution, and transform app delivery from an endpoint into an always-on part of your development lifecycle while ensuring an exceptional service experience. So be the one who wins. App after app, day after day, with Agile Management. From CA. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? 
In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance. We're interviewing the authors of uh, How Leaders Improve, a playbook for leaders uh, who want to get better now. And and we were just talking through a couple of their model points. And, and you know, my mind was, was going to actually, it was at a client site, uh, a brand new client site for us um, this week. And uh, we were, I was talking to their leadership team and I was like, you know, by the way, if, if, um, if, if you think that, you know, everything's perfect in, in your team, in your world, then, then, then you're the problem, right? I, I was kind of giving that speech to, to the leaders that everybody needs to improve. Everybody needs to be pulling the string. And if, if you're, if you can't see that, right, then, then you're the person that has the issue. You, you've got to be a leader who's constantly looking and, and searching for ways to improve. But if you think, hey, man, my team's perfect, then that, that that's an issue, and, and and that's a maturity thing that that has come with growth. And in, in in my world, in my early twenties, I, I remember um, managing restaurants and thinking that you know I, I was I was I was the hardest working manager. I really was, but I didn't have to be because I wasn't empowering my team, and I thought I was trying to lead by example, and I didn't recognize that I was actually squashing my team and, and being a, a poor example of a leader. I was I was uh, really just a, a manager. And so there's this this point, and what on the low side we'll call it the blind spot, as you guys said, and we were talking on break. On the high side, it's it's the Dunning Kruger effect of, of where there's a cognitive bias where people just don't know they're they're that bad. So how do we address that and get people open to an environment where they can start to look at this ripen model and start to recognize that first I have to improve before B I can start to make improvements. And I'll let any one of you answer that. And when there's silence the from three guys, then you've just stumped regularly. it. That's a great question. 360 feedback, Rick. I'm not sure how much uh, experience you've had using or receiving 360 feedback, but that's a great dose of uh, reality and, and perspective around what other people uh, think of you. You know, I, I tend to think of 360 feedback as being uh, looking in the in the mirror as a, a leader. Uh, and the numbers don't lie, right? Uh, and there's anonymity involved in there, so people will be a bit more courageous and direct in, in raising concerns. Now, certainly, I'm confident that all three of us have worked with leaders 
who have said in the past, oh, that's just perception. That's not real. That's just their perception. They don't understand uh, or they're biased and they're giving that feedback because of their, their biases or, or something along those lines. Uh, our, our mentor, Paul Gasky, had a, a phrase that he was fond of saying, uh, perception is reality. Doesn't, it, you know, if people believe it, then it's true. Uh, so th- I think that's one of the things that we, we, we discuss when we're talking about this Dunning-Kruger effect or, or a blind spot uh, is if people have the perception and they're the ones who determine if you're an effective leader, you, you need to listen to it. And it uh, doesn't matter if you don't think it's true. If they think it's true, then, then it's impacting your credibility. So that's one of the places that we start with that. Uh, I, I think another that came out in the book and that the, the three of us have, I think, regularly utilized or, or found to be helpful is uh, often in, in one of these 360 feedback reports, there's something that's a penetrating message, a message that sticks with people. And if you were to ask them four months, six months, a year after receiving a 360 feedback report, what do they remember? It probably comes back to one short phrase that sticks out in their mind and, and bugs them. Um, we certainly saw that with our, uh, w- with our most improved leaders, that they could all point back to a, a, a penetrating message. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm guessing, think, too, that, you know, that, that, Rick, you probably, along your career, as you mentioned, at some point you kind of realized there was something about how you were doing it you could improve. There probably was a... Uh, a penetrating message, right? There was probably a wake-up call at some point. I don't know if it came from within or from someone else, but we, we tend to find that uh, there is a wake-up call uh, usually delivered by someone else, but sometimes it comes from the person themselves through experience and, and maturation, as you as you mentioned. Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, almost losing a job or, you know, a poor review or things like that. Um, yeah. And, 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 and you know, the interesting thing about a, a natural maturation is it's almost like uh, if you haven't seen somebody in five or six years and then all of a sudden their appearance has changed drastically. Um, I think people can mature in their business you know, life and, and the way that they lead people the same way. Uh, so I came across some emails that I had written you know, six or seven years prior uh, and didn't even recognize who that person was who was writing those emails. You know, I, I wouldn't let anybody who worked for me write emails in that tone with that kind of ego. Uh, and then when I looked who wrote them, I was like, dude, that was me. No way. Um, right? So, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, so, you, you, your reaction to that, kind of having the, I'll call it embarrassment of like, who, who wrote that email? Oh, my God, that was me. Uh, penetrating messages always have an emotional component. So... Uh, you know, Sasha mentions, you know, usually there's a phrase or a moment that happens, but that phrase or that moment always has emotions related to it. Kind of if someone's not feeling a strong emotion based on, you know, something somebody wrote in a 360 feedback or something their boss says in a, in a performance review, if they don't feel it, they're less likely to make the next necessary change. Uh, and, you know, you know, that emotion can be positive or negative. You know, it, uh, we tend to find as, as coaches that there are plenty of negative messages that, you know, are getting delivered. Um, people need to improve things and their boss or their colleagues in a 360 are saying, hey, you know, you, you know, you are 
you know, you're a micromanager, right? If you're getting feedback from you, you're a micromanager, and you need to kind of empower us more, uh, then people can feel either you know, guilty or embarrassed or maybe angry that people would say that about them. But that emotion actually stirs energy that people, if they use it the right way or get help or support or coach kind of in, you know, on skill development and whatnot, they can use that energy, um, that negative energy transform into positive action uh, and kind of do something about it. You know, if there's a lack of, if it's all logic and no emotion in the reaction, uh, the improvement probably won't take or might not stick. So, Jeff, is that then the penetrating message kind of linking then to the incentive and the ripeness model? Is that essentially what's happening there? Yeah, and there, that's right. And, and there's a, uh, a motivating factor that people have to avoid cognitive dissonance, right? So, you know, we have had uh, leaders who see themselves as good people and as caring human beings and then get really tough messages in a feedback report uh, from their team, from their colleagues saying, uh, you know, you're a jerk. Uh, and I can think of a leader right now, uh, I can think of a lot, but I can think of one pretty recent where uh, they got feedback that says, basically, you know, you're not treating people well. You're acting like a jerk. You're dominating airtime. Uh, you're not listening to people. You're not being inclusive of others' ideas. It's all about you. And when people get that penetrating message, right, you're being a jerk, or, oh, my God, am I being a jerk? It doesn't sit right with leaders most of the time, and they want to do something about it. Uh, it's a, there's a different feeling people have if, if someone says to them, hey, you're not a very good listener, uh, than if someone says to them, hey, you're being a jerk, uh, but in some cases, really, that's what's being said uh, in people's feedback or in the messages they're getting. And, you know, kind of how they take it uh, or how a coach or boss kind of frames it can really impact whether or not they uh, kind of, quote, unquote, get it. Uh, is it penetrating or not? Uh, the message better have some emotionality to it. And I don't mean emotionality like kind of yelling and screaming and pounding the table, but like that the result is some emotions get stirred in the person. I'll give, you, I'll give you one uh, quick story on uh, one that sticks out for me uh, when I think about penetrating messages that was a leader not too long ago who was a great guy, just a funny guy, never met a stranger. Uh, I, I liked the guy. I loved the guy. He was great to deal with, great to work with. Um, he had moved up in his organization, was a fairly senior level at this point that I was dealing with him, and he you know, had been what most people would consider successful but he was kind of worried about uh, his credibility and legitimacy now that he was at kind of a more senior level of expanded responsibility, bigger team, multiple teams, et cetera, et cetera. And his feedback said, uh, amongst a lot of other things, hey, you're a great guy and we love you and you're great to work with and, and kind of, you know, you don't act like a traditional boss. You know, you're more casual. You joke around. You ease tension when there's tension by telling jokes or or kind of like being self-deprecating, kind of all things that were good on the one hand. However, he was still kind of overdoing it with the humor and the funny stuff. And, and one of the things that as he and I talked about his feedback, uh, I, I said to him, you know, it's all well and good to be funny and, and, and humorous and kind of not be overly serious. And he kind of interrupted me, and he said uh, to me, he got it before he even said it. He said, yeah, but I don't want to be the class clown. And right then and there, he had created his own penetrating message, which is there's a lot of upside to being kind of a nice, funny, humorous guy, but at a senior level, 
if you kind of overdo it, it has a consequence. There's a downside. People won't take you seriously. And for him, that was a penetrating message, and that really stuck with him, and he keeps that in mind, right? It's, like, unforgettable for him, right? I don't want to be the class clown, so I'm kind of going to button up a little bit when it's appropriate. I'm going to work on my executive presence. Uh, I'm not going to joke around as much as I have been, you know, especially with senior audiences, um, and kind of, therefore, I'll be a better leader and more credible. Yeah, and I'm a little upset right now because, Jeff, uh, you and I promised we weren't going to share that uh, personal coaching message you gave to me. So uh, I appreciate (laughs) you sharing that with the audience. Um, No, no, but that's that's absolutely the truth, and I do appreciate the story. And I I, I think those stories are are what connects that that the message. It's it's you know that it's great feedback, but once you connected that to, and he connected that right to that personal feeling. Um, yep. The moment he felt that that joke coming on in that meeting is when that that connection would happen to where he would stave that off. Yep. And, and it's important. One of the things that um, uh, I wouldn't say surprised us, but was uh, illuminated a little bit in the research that we did with our most improved readers is uh, one or more of us had kind of thought, well, penetrating messages come from the coach because, hey, you know, kind of that's what we do. And. You know, we think delivering penetrating messages is a good kind of technique or tool. But we, what we discovered is sometimes it comes from the coach, like after the 360. Sometimes it comes from the boss or a colleague or a direct report. Uh, and sometimes, and this was kind of the small surprise, uh, some, a fair number of times it comes kind of from within the person. Like it doesn't have to come from the outside. It can come from within, uh, although kind of helping the person get there uh, still can be pretty useful. Uh, so it can be positive or negative. Or it can come from multiple sources, as long as it kind of hits home on a nerve um, and, and drives emotion. We would consider it a useful kind of penetrating message, a good wake up call. I, I had an interesting example. Well, and if we can, if we can, I think we're if we can do that uh, interesting example when we come back. We're against a hard break here. We're going to go ahead and let the uh, sponsors pay us here for a second. We'll be right back here on the Work Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Winning in the application economy means executing a business strategy that gets the hottest products and apps out the door and into market faster than ever before. But what happens when hot is suddenly not? Can you instantly pivot and prioritize your plans and investment portfolio to react to the new reality and make sure your strategy is right on target? You will with CA Project and Portfolio Management, the proven solution that enables agile, effective decision-making across your entire investment portfolio. Unlike other tools, CAPPM is designed to work the way you do. Doers are empowered, planners are enabled, helpers are elevated, and customers are engaged. All while you maximize performance and portfolio value. It's little wonder that CAPPM is the industry leader 
with more than 2 million happy users worldwide, not to mention world-class consulting and implementation partners. So why not give CA Project and Portfolio Management a closer look and make everything you've got put you out in front? Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we are back to the Work-Life Balance. We are discussing how leaders improve... And uh, this is a book uh, by Sasha Lindikins, uh, Jeff Grady, John Gates. Uh, they are with Avion Consulting, and you can reach them at www.avionconsulting. That's A-V-I-O-N consulting.com. And right before we uh, uh, went to break, Sasha was about to uh, share a story on penetrating messages as well. So, Sasha, please continue that. Okay, great. So I was uh, working with a leader a year or two ago, and a really talented individual seen as a, a high potential, uh, but tended to consume a lot of the, the airtime in meetings. You know, probably spoke over 50% of the time. And uh, the feedback was it seemed to be pretty ego-driven. Like he just wanted to hear himself speak and wasn't adding substantive value, etc. So we're going through that feedback, and uh, I, it came back, it came back, to me, he said to me, I think it was the next day, wow, this was really shocking to me and bothersome, uh, not necessarily due to the, the business impact of it, but I'm trying to be a good Christian, and, and this is not the behavior of, of a good Christian. Uh, so as Jeff was talking about, sometimes the, the penetrating message is from what, you know, it, it's the words that the coach or... or uh, the feedback provider is using, and sometimes it's how the person internalizes it. Uh, and, and it's based on their 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 value system and, and and that sort of thing. So that was an interesting example of uh, of a penetrating message. And I think it also uh, served as a, a bit of a a guiding metaphor for the individual, which is one of our our other our, our other findings. So, uh, John, do you want to jump in and? Talk about yeah, guiding John, metaphors. Yeah, you had talked about guiding metaphors before when when we talked back in September. So why why are those so powerful? Yeah, um, I think they're powerful because they they do a couple of things um, uh, to help leaders who are trying to improve just focus uh, and recall what they're working on. I, I come back to not only Sasha's example just now, but 
Jeff's example from a few minutes ago when he referred to the guy who came up with the term class clown. Uh, he's not literally a clown, but uh, that two-word uh, description will probably stick with him and help him to stay focused on what it is he's trying to improve at. Uh, another example, something I experienced very recently that's kind of in the same vein, uh, just a few days ago, I got a very nice thank you card from a leader that uh, was in one of our leader development programs last year. And a uh, uh, very seasoned guy, pretty senior leader, but he had been passed over for promotion uh, for a couple of years now. And in this thank you card, he informed me that actually he just got promoted to the executive vice president level and very kindly said, hey, I, I think the, the program I went through with, with you and your colleagues was very helpful toward that end. It helped him to, uh, you know, improve in some areas that he was focusing on, and I think that translated into a promotion. And I think I can probably guess what part of the program he found uh, most impactful. So this guy played sports at a very high level, and in one of our coaching conversations, uh, something dawned on me. Uh, I thought about a particular team that I, I knew that he'd be familiar with, given his background, and in fact, two particular players on that team. And so I offered up, I said, you know, it, it strikes me that maybe you see yourself a little bit more like, I'll just call it player A, uh, when maybe to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, you really need to see yourself more like player B. And that really seemed to resonate with him. Soon after that, he, he shot me an email saying, <laughs> I am not player A, I am player B. Uh, and, uh, it had something to do with uh, really what it means to be a leader as opposed to just a, a great team player. And so to, to use that as an example, I, I think this idea that I am player B, uh, you know, insert player name, but I am player B, it helped him to stay focused on what he was working on. Uh, he and I referred back to that uh, sort of analogy a number of times in our coaching conversations, so it sort of helped with recall. Uh, it sort of guided his behavior. So it would be one thing to say, hey, here are the three or four behaviors that maybe you need to think about changing to be the kind of leader that you want to be. And we did some of that. But I think uh, the, 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 the metaphor, the analogy that, hey, this is the kind of player I want to be like, I think really helped to guide his behavior more than some list of action steps. But getting back to something Jeff said earlier, I think maybe the most powerful thing that this comparison or this metaphor did for this leader was that it really sort of uh, struck him on a visceral level it was really clear that he no longer wanted to be perceived as player A, the good team player, but the guy who's really not, uh, you know, a, a leader. Uh, and he really wanted to be seen more as player B, the guy who was the team captain and the obvious leader on the team. And so I think because that really, it was something he related to on such a visceral level that I think it, it caused him to, to really take his follow-through effort seriously. So I think that those are a few reasons why the guiding metaphor is, is something that we heard in our research uh, as uh, as really a powerful tool to uh, help leaders to, to get better. And, yeah, one, and of the, so could, one of the things that John mentioned there uh, that tends to happen when you don't have a guiding metaphor, so we know guiding metaphors help people focus and remember and kind of guide themselves along the way. If you don't have a guiding metaphor, what we've noticed in our other work, in, our, in leaders that kind of don't improve as much or kind of uh, coaching engagements where kind of it's been less sticky, uh, and they've kind of, you know, fallen off the wagon more often or kind of backslid, is that people sometimes can't really tell you what some of the specific things that they should be working on are like six months or a year later. Like, or you fast forward six or nine months, and it's like, hey, what are you working on? And they can't 
or you know, what are you trying to change specifically in your behaviors as a leader? And like they can remember kind of one of the behaviors, but not the other three that they originally had committed to. And uh, it's much easier, more memorable to kind of remember the metaphor and therefore then remember the two or three behaviors that kind of go with the metaphor. So it both kind of, kind of unifies things in some ways in people's kind of mind, kind of they have a vision of it. Um, and, uh, and it kind of tends to stick better where kind of individual behavioral action items, you know, don't always end up being sticky, right? And people forget them over time. Yeah, that certainly brings it to life for me. I, you know, I'd come up with one, I'm an auditory thinker. So what's great about having a radio show like this is I work a lot of my junk out right here on the show. Uh, and it had done a show, um, you know, several, several months ago. Um, and, and during that had, had come up with the analogy for myself uh, of Sisyphus and, and, you know, so I, I have a great team around me, but, but being a small business owner and doing this stuff, I, it's, it's the analogy for me with I, I, having massive ADD and having to focus on so many different aspects of my business at all times was pushing the rock up the mountain and hoping that the mountain was bigger every day so that, you know, I would have work. But if you take that breath and get distracted, that the mountain, the, the rock's going to slide down. And then I just have to keep yep. pushing, keep yep. grinding, keep pushing. And so I had come up with that analogy, but that has stuck with me. Um, and I'll even kind of smack myself on the wrist when, when I'm, you know, have lost five minutes or 10 minutes down some YouTube spiral or something going, all right, Sisyphus, <laughs> let's rock, right? But it works. And, and ever since I did that show and ever since I made that analogy, um, that, that has become the standing joke for me. But it absolutely 100% works. Um, I'm a living testament of that ever, ever since that occurred. Yeah, and we've so, heard so many examples, Rick, uh, very much like that uh, as we were doing our research. Um, you know, things like I need to be careful not to give people answers to the test or I need to be careful not to pile on or I need to be careful not to, uh, you know, get too far into the weeds. It just seems like there's something about uh, creating a mental shortcut. I, I want to, you know, stop trying to roll this rock or this, this, you know, this rock up this this hill. Uh, there's something about that that just uh, really causes people to, um, you know, focus and take more seriously than maybe they have in the past some area that they know they need to work on. I I couldn't agree more. And so Sasha, yeah. you know, we had talked also really quickly, and we're about three minutes away from a break here. Um, but we did want to talk to as well is why do you think um, critical conversations were one of the, the findings of your study? Uh, right. So, so what we found is our most improved leaders cited a series of conversations that they had gotten involved in after receiving 360 feedback or after being part of a development program, and they thought that that was very instrumental in enhancing their effectiveness. I think there's probably three reasons why, why these conversations are, are so important. Uh, number one, leadership is it's an interactive sort of event. It involves influencing others, uh, and communication is how that happens. And, and if you're looking to become more effective, it's a, around engaging in new sorts of discussions or, or changing existing conversation patterns. So... Uh, I think the first reason why these critical conversations were important is is because leadership is about human interaction. Uh, a a second reason I think that these are important is around 
these critical conversations that people were engaging in often led to perception change. Uh, so if people perceive you in a certain way and then you're going back and saying, hey, thanks for the feedback. I just saw a leader do this yesterday. Thanks so much for the feedback. Here's what I'm working on. Uh, would really value your feedback and input going forward. And, oh, by the way, do you think I'm, I'm working on the right sorts of things? Well, that perks people's ears up when, when they hear something like that. Hmm, maybe Leader X actually is going to change. That takes some guts to, to do that, to admit foibles in, in, in front of others. Let me pay attention and see if there are specific sorts of changes. So I think uh, the second reason these critical conversations are so important is because they facilitate perception change. Uh, and the third reason is a lot of times the, the sorts of feedback people were receiving were related to conversations. So uh, this individual isn't uh, engaging in uh, team development or this individual isn't providing enough direction or setting a vision uh, and, and then to act on that feedback, you would need to have some of these critical conversations. Those are three reasons, I think, why, why critical conversations stood out as an important message amongst our most improved leaders. And again, so all of this that we talked about, so ripeness, we talked about uh, penetrating messages, guiding metaphors, critical conversations, all of this can be found in How Leaders Improve, a playbook for leaders who want to get better now, uh, these are the authors right here, Jeff Grady, uh, John Gates, Sasha Lindikins, who we've been talking about all segment along. We've got one more segment for them, but while we're on break, you can go and get your own copy on Amazon.com, um, or you can research them at uh, Avion Consulting, A-V-I-O-N Consulting.com. Uh, we're going to take our final break right here of the show. We'll be right back after two minutes. You're listening to The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. In today's hyper-fast, super-competitive business world, on time is now too late, on budget is now too expensive, and today's innovation is tomorrow's antique, which means app releases that used to happen regularly now need to happen continuously, while always delivering experiences that keep your customers coming back for more. In other words, you need to be agile, and there's no better way to get there than with agile management from CA Technologies a complete set of solutions and services that make agility a reality so you can anticipate and rapidly respond to change and immediately incorporate customer feedback, build a flexible bridge between ideas and execution, and transform app delivery from an endpoint into an always-on part of your development lifecycle while ensuring an exceptional service experience. So be the one who wins. App after app, day after day, with Agile Management. From CA. Winning in the application economy means executing a business strategy that gets the hottest products and apps out the door and into market faster than ever before. But what happens when hot is suddenly not? Can you instantly pivot and prioritize your plans and investment portfolio to react to the new reality and make sure your strategy is right on target? You will with CA Project and Portfolio Management the proven solution that enables agile, effective decision-making across your entire investment portfolio. Unlike other tools, CAPPM is designed to work the way you do, 
Doers are empowered, planners are enabled, helpers are elevated, and customers are engaged. All while you maximize performance and portfolio value. It's little wonder that CAPPM is the industry leader with more than 2 million happy users worldwide, not to mention world-class consulting and implementation partners. So why not give CA project and portfolio management a closer look and make everything you've got put you out in front? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we are back for the final segment of the Work-Life Balance. Uh, quick bit of trivia. As, as most of you know, the music, the lead-in music and lead-out music for the Work-Life Balance was uh, created by a group called The Party, uh, originally formed uh, uh, by five members of the Mickey Mouse Club from the show in the 90s. It's a group that uh, I'm a business manager and manager to. Uh, and the one of the only members that was on all seven seasons of the Mickey Mouse Club was Chasen Hampton. Uh, who's appeared on this show with us a couple of times, and today is Chasen's birthday. So the redhead ace of the dance floor, we wanted to say happy birthday to you, brother. So coming back, uh, we wanted to uh, do a very popular segment on this radio show, which is ask our guests, what is some of the best advice they've ever received? And we'll start with Sasha. Sasha, what do you say? Uh, great, great question. I would have to say that some of the best advice I've ever received is uh, don't be a victim. Being a victim, it's you're choosing to be a victim uh, and instead choose to take personal accountability and, and ownership. And that's served me well many, many times in my life. And Sasha amazingly said that uh, there's an incredible app uh, called Pep Talk that uh, I use in the mornings to, to kind of get my engine uh, running and and Les Brown says uh, don't be a uh, says be a victor don't be a victim I love it oh, I, I like love that. it yeah Got be a, a victor don't be a there. victim there you go steal it go for it have it um, <laughs> all right Jeff you're up yeah I think that some of the best advice uh, it's probably a long list from a lot of uh, uh, smart people wise people that have given me good advice over the years but one that stands out for me uh, is kind of related to the idea of like getting better as a guy who's always trying to get better myself and help others get better, uh, kind of try and, uh, you know, take my own medicine, right? How can I be better as a coach, as a leader, as a, you know, as a, a father, as a husband, as a whatever, you know, always trying to improve. Um, and uh, I've gotten great advice about uh, focus on the stuff that really matters. Uh, I have a bad habit of trying to focus on everything <laughs> and improve uh, everything that I touch and see uh, and come across. And uh, it's been really useful advice. I've gotten it a number of times uh, from colleagues and in and, and my personal life. And I've gotten that feedback from from my uh, partners and friends here, Sasha and, and John, uh, to reinforce that message of uh, not everything is equally important, whether you're trying to help a leader get better or whether you're personally trying to improve and 
advice has stuck with me, and I am continu- continuously trying to kind of get better at getting better at the right things and putting my energy into kind of the big buckets uh, and not trying to kind of solve for everything. So that's, that's some of the best advice that um, I continue to try and take advantage of. Yeah, I love it. Actually, was uh, reviewing uh, today the the law of priorities from John Maxwell, and uh, yeah. yeah, he talks about the the three R's, right? What is required, uh, what gives the greatest return, and uh, you know what brings me the greatest reward in in prioritizing, you know, based on those three, uh, yep. Yep. which kind of gets it. things, yeah, gets things in perspective. John, what about you, sir? Well, of course, uh, you've posed this question to me on air one other time, and I recall my answer from last time. It was actually uh, from my father, and it was uh, you know, a pretty profound piece of advice related to the importance of judgment in the area of leadership. But I want to give a different answer this time uh, and actually give a shout-out to uh, our fourth partner, Steve Williams, um, who's a great leadership development professional and actually... Uh, even though he's not one of the co-authors of this book, uh, he was heavily involved in, in the writing of the book. So uh, shout out to Steve. And uh, he gave me some advice not too long ago, uh, which was essentially in a, a range of contexts, just be careful to sort of moderate my pace, not feel like I've got to, you know, get through all of my talking points in a given, uh, given context. And interestingly, uh, something happened uh, within the last few months that I think really ripened me in that area and has caused me to really focus on that more. And so it was good advice, and I feel like it, it's made me a, a better professional. Outstanding. And so, John, any uh, closing comments for the group? You know, my only closing comment is this. Uh, at, uh, at the outset of the, uh, the, the program today, Rick, you made a reference to the book Think and Grow Rich, and I recall that book from when I was, uh, you know, a young adult. And I guess uh, – what struck me when you use that example is that, as you p- pointed out, you know, it's a good book full of lots of good advice for how to get rich. But, of course, not everybody who's read the book is actually rich. And I think that that gets at our whole approach to this study. Uh, we didn't want this just to be a book where we say, you know, as leadership, professional, uh, leadership development professionals, here's our advice on how to get better. We wanted to do a comparison of, uh, you know, to go back to the Think and Grow Rich analogy, who were the people who actually did get rich, and when we compare them to the people who didn't, what's the difference? And so, you know, really we've tried to tackle the question, when you compare leaders who actually have gotten better over time to to those who have tried but haven't, uh, what are the trends that we see? And we hope in the last hour that we've been able to share a, a few examples of the insights that came out of that research. And I think you did. And again, the book is called How Leaders Improve, a playbook for leaders who want to get better now. You can find that on Amazon.com. Please go get a copy and support uh, the authors that support this show. And again, Sasha, Jeff, John, I had a fantastic time. The hour flew by. Uh, Really enjoyed it. We'll hope that uh, you guys will return to the show soon. Rick, thank you so much. And uh, coming up next week, we're going to be interviewing Paul Cummings. He's written a book called It All Matters, 125 Strategies to Achieve Maximum Confidence, Clarity, Certainty, and Creativity. 125 strategies, that's a lot. So uh, we've only got an hour. We'll see how many of those we can get through. As always, we love you guys for uh, for joining the show. Uh, we enjoy our listeners. Again, we, uh, we got numbers at the end of the year there. Uh, 91 countries are listening to the work-life balance. So if you're in one of those 91 countries, we love each and every one of you. 
uh, as we continue to grow uh, this show. Lots and lots and lots of exciting things are coming. So stick with us right here on the Voice America Business Network. We enjoy you. We love you. And we hope you'll tune in next week right here on the Work-Life Balance. You've been listening to Rick Morris. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show.